Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Miranda Corcoran and joining me today are Ulrich Baer and Smaran Dial, um, authors of the new anthology, Fictions in America, the Book of Firsts, a collection of literary milestones that broke barriers, inaugurated new literary movements and changed how we think about literature. So thank you both for joining me today and welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, thank you for having us on the show today. Happy to be here. So before we start talking about the book more specifically, would you both be able to tell our listeners a little bit about your own backgrounds and what brought you to this project? So uh, I'm Ulrich Baer, so I'll start. Um, I uh, was born in Germany, but I came to the United States as a teenager. And I think I really made it kind of my mission to understand my adopted country. So I started reading American literature in high school, in an American high school in Pennsylvania, and then haven't stopped since. And now I teach literature, um, all sorts of literature, American, English, French, German, uh, from other countries um, at, at the college level. And I teach. And the other thing, in addition to literature, I'm really interested in and I've written about is freedom of expression and free speech. So this book kind of brought together two of my main interests and my own personal kind of passion for being part of this uh, great, complicated, complex country, which is the United States. Absolutely. And what about you, Smaran? So I am actually from India. I was born in Bombay and um, I moved to New York to, to do a PhD here in comparative literature in 2016. But... Um, before that, I lived in Germany for seven years where I did most of my university studies. And I think like uh, a major part of my studies, my focus has been um, in literature, in English and also in German has, to, has been to think about, um, you know, the questions of canon formation, um, what we put on the curriculum, what texts we read, how we approach them. And I've so I've kind of been raising these questions within like global English literature, but then in German and um, and also in American literature. So I did like my master's in in American studies in in Berlin. And um, even though our department at the Humboldt University had this kind of um, critical race studies and feminist studies focus, um, I guess uh, something that I was never fully um, satisfied with in my overall studies, and and that's nothing specific to that department, but about American literature as it studied as a whole, was that these kind of marginal texts. Um, by queer authors, by, um, you know, uh, authors of color weren't um, foregrounded in American literary history. So like for me, that's kind of um, how I came to the project. I mean, uh, but in concrete terms, I've been um, uh, working on and off as um, Uli's uh, research assistant. So when he pitched this project to me, you know, uh, early in 2020, I think it was, um, it was, yeah, it was really exciting. And it was really like a, a great opportunity to like, work on something that I and I think Uli also felt would like really have an impact not just on the academy but like on 
broader public discourse in, you know, Trump's America. Absolutely. And, you know, I think this question of canon formation that you touched on uh, really is something that will probably keep coming up throughout this conversation, because in, in looking through the book and reading the introduction, this question of how we decide what is, you know, what is, what is the canon, how we decide what belongs in the canon, um, it, it really, um, it really reverberates throughout the entire text. So that's definitely something we'll come back to throughout the conversation. So at this point, could you tell us a little bit about the book of firsts? What is it and how does it differ from other literary anthologies? So the book of firsts gives you really for the first time, all of the first publications by a wide range of American authors, the first women, the first novel, the first African-Americans, the first Mexican-Americans, the first Native Americans, the first Asian-Americans, the first Arab-Americans, the first probably identified as queer authors. So there's a range of people who were part of America, but not recognized as full citizens, and in many cases, not even fully human. In the case of African-Americans, for example, or women who couldn't go to school, were not allowed to participate in public discourse in that way, and nonetheless published novels, plays, poems. So we were interested in putting a book together that has all of these milestones by these pioneers, by people who really didn't pay attention to what the culture told them, how to behave and how to not speak out, and published works. And what we looked at, I actually honestly thought that you could just type in to Google first Native American poet, first woman novelist, and you would get the answer. And it's actually not really established and it took an enormous amount of research for by the work of scholars activists um, really independent researchers who'd established when was the first short story published by an african-american when did the first native american publish a poem so it differs from other anthologies that it really puts these milestones together that then inaugurated new traditions and challenge our way of thinking what is american literature Absolutely. And, you know, I can't help but think as as someone who teaches American literature myself or has taught American literature in the past, that this anthology is something that will be particularly useful as a teaching tool as well. Um, So uh, it seems like a a really fascinating project. Uh, Could you say a little bit about how you came to select the authors and works that you included in the anthology? How did you decide who was going to be a part of this book? Maybe I'll say a line before um, I let Uli jump in on this, but I think, I mean, it basically came down to, it started with a lot of research. So we first sat down and we said, okay, look, we're going to um, go through archives, go through, um, you know, existent um, niche scholarship on particular authors, on particular periods, come up with, um, uh, all these um, different kinds of, you know, literary first that exist in the tradition, but that aren't talked about. And then it came to the sort of longer process of, of conversations between me and Uli about, um, you know, how we're framing this, what to include, what we thought, um, you know, uh, the texts were that both um, bore a certain significance in terms of being um, the, the sort of firsts in their particular, uh, you know, communities and categories. But um, but also bore a certain aesthetic um, quality to them. So this is not so anyway. So that's that's kind of how 
uh, we got to this point. But but maybe Uli, you have more to say about this. Well, if you think about who you were taught in high school or college, or if you're an interested reader, what you read, there's a canon established of major American authors. Melville, Whitman, Dickinson, some fit in. Edgar Allan Poe is a really interesting case because some anthologies include him, most do. Some people, major critics or scholars, don't really consider Poe a major author, although he's probably the most popular author from the 19th century. So there's always a dispute about who belongs in the tradition of a particular nation's canon. So we decided to put in works and authors that really open up um, possibilities for so many others to write after them. So the first woman to write poetry in America is actually Anne Bradstreet. The first Native American poet, June Johnston Schoolcraft, uh, is Jane Johnston Schoolcraft, is a poet in the 1820s who really becomes a figure for Native American poetry, which is thriving today, to identify with and to look back and say, someone actually in 1820 published works in my tradition. So we decided well, who to include based on this idea of what the canon is. And the other thing I was really interested in that I've been teaching American literature for a long time, and my students really ask for texts that reflect or give a history to their own experiences, not in a simplistic way, but representation really matters to them. So I was looking very much for texts written by people who opened up the kind of space of their lives in a way, not in a simplistic way, I'm like that person, that author, but actually opened up a dimension of experience that was missing from many other texts. So this second aspect that we're living in a time right now where representation is really, really important for many generations and there's always been a push um, by African-American scholars, by uh, Asian-American scholars, by uh, women and feminist scholars to include more texts by authors who are not just white and male. And I think this really matters to people greatly today. So this book is really a teaching book from my point of view for the students that I'm teaching today in 2020. And I think there's like an additional um, uh, dimension um which you which you started to touch upon Uli, which is about the broader context within which we're teaching today, right? Of um, when when we're talking about diversifying the curriculum, the debate often gets stalled in this um, uh, you know kind in, in this kind of loggerheads of oh I'm for this rich past, but you who are looking to uh, diversify the curriculum and make um, you know the, the syllabi more representative are simply kind of trying to focus on the present and abandoning this rich literary and cultural past of um, say the US, but, but even of other um, um, you know, European countries. And I think a, a big part of this project was to show, wait, 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 no, there is an extremely rich literary history that goes beyond Poe, that goes beyond Faulkner um, and includes all of these different authors that simply weren't read, you know? So this isn't, so much um, a, a debate of history versus these upstarts in the present who want to make the curriculum, you know, um, uh, sort of artificially diverse. The, the fact of the matter is not only American history, but American literature, the, the actual writing being produced in this country has always been, um, you know, uh, so much more diverse than we assume it was. That, I think that's such a, an interesting point because you're right. I think that sometimes when you are engaged in this kind of project, when you're trying to diversify the canon or expand how we understand um, 
you know, American literature or any national literature, you will have people who, as you said, will say, oh, you know, you're you're overly concerned with the present. You're not looking at the rich past, the rich literary past we had. And I think that's such an interesting point because, you know, so there is so much American literature in, in this case that, you know, we just haven't had the opportunity to encounter. And I, I was really struck by the fact, and it's something you mentioned a little bit earlier on, that it was actually very hard to track down a lot of these writers and track down a lot of these works, because I also kind of assumed that you could just, you know, Google it and find out, as you said, you know, who the first Native American author to publish a poem in the U.S. was. It didn't occur to me that actually that that is information that in itself is obscured. Would you be able to say a little bit about the research process, how you found these authors, how you looked into them? And was it very difficult to come across these works? So we really have to give credit and pay tribute to so many scholars who for generations have really um, identified some of these texts and literally sifted through, for example, 19th century newspapers. So uh, Robert Dale Parker, who is the editor of Jane Johnston's Goldcraft's work and the Native American poet I mentioned, basically went through every single record of every single newspaper published in the Americas in the 1820s, which was largely the unincorporated territories or the mid, what's today the Midwest, today's Michigan. And he found poems by Native American poets that had never been anthologies and shallows that had never been reprinted. And that people really had completely forgotten because they were published in a today obscure newspaper in Oklahoma or some place like that. So uh, the same thing is true for a lot of the women writers. Um, there's been an enormous amount of work by uh, feminist scholars and w really almost exclusively women scholars, which is quite telling, actually, who started much earlier than the 1960s, but really massively in the 1960s, to unearth texts that just simply had been entirely forgotten. Some things were found very recently. So Jupiter Hammond, who is one of the first African-Americans to publish a poem in America and who was enslaved on Long Island, just outside of New York City for 95 years of his life and published poems while he was enslaved to this family on Long Island. Um, he published a poem that was only discovered a few years ago because it was in a box of his so-called owner's possessions in the uh, Beinecke Library at Yale University. So some things have just been discovered very, very recently. So, uh, as you said, Miranda, the obvious thing would have been to think you could just Google it and type it in. Once you know the text, you can, in fact, type it in and then Google will come up with an arcane academic publication or a work from 1942 where someone anthologized African-American plays. And that book may exist in one library at Berkeley or at Trinity College in Dublin or in... Uh, in some other research library, but you can't access it. So part of what we tried to do with this book to make these things available in one place, and secondly, to create reliable texts. So we spent a lot of time actually uh, triple checking. We went back to every single original place of printing to try to get it exactly right. Um, so the part of discovery was really, really incredibly fun. Um, incredibly exciting, a bit difficult thanks to COVID because we actually cannot travel right now to actual archives. So a lot of archivists and librarians have been incredibly gracious to make available digital copies of things. Um, so it, it was really a kind of um, 
a bit of a sort of uh, expedition into these archives. And as I said, for some reason, sometimes it took an enormous amount of time to read dozens of books on women's writings to really establish with the certainty that we have. And Smaran and I keep on talking all the time and we're fully aware and we would be excited if someone comes up and says, no, 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 there's an earlier text. There's an earlier Mexican-American novel or there's an earlier Asian-American poem published. We'd be happy to update the book in a way and find something that even goes deeper into the history. In, in fact, something that we said was we hope I mean, that the research continues to the point at which the book of firsts becomes the book of seconds. Like we want this literary research to happen to show, wait, 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 no, you're wrong. There's this earlier text or there's this, you know, a particular poem that showed up here. Make make the book of firsts the book of seconds. We want that to happen. And so to a certain extent, this was this book. It's, it's a risky endeavor to, um, even though we were extremely careful and put a lot of effort, um, um, you know, into establishing the uh, the kind of claims that we're making by um, uh, labeling certain texts first. Um, th- this is a process that you know will inevitably continue, and we want it to con- continue. So it's kind of like a provocation. Like here's the book of first. If if you know you find other texts, please let us know or put it out into the world. And um, we, we have very charm, very very funny, and very charming, and very generous correspondence with major scholars. So we identified a short story by Rose Terry Cook, who was a major writer, a household name really in 19th century America. So in 1858, she publishes a story called My Visitation, which we identify as the first published lesbian themed story in America. And the scholars who are really experts all said, this is a good choice, but I won't really condone it because it's quite possible that an earlier text has a level of intensity and friendship between two women that we would today consider um, erotic love or erotic longing in the terms of 19th century, you cannot use that. So we are retrospectively applying our standard today to identify a text as, for example, lesbian themed or as um, Latinx or as Asian American for authors who wouldn't have used or known any of these categories, of course. We're fully aware that we always use our present kind of framing to understand them. But the nice thing was that the the scholars who corresponded with us said, you can make this choice in this decision. It is a vibrant debate. So we tried to reference in the anthology in very short kind of one-page summaries. There's a robust debate and we have um, material included for people who want to learn more where we give the major references to scholars who've worked on these authors. Yeah, and just to add to that, like I mean, as you said, Uli, this applies to practically every category in in um, in the book. So even when it comes to you know the first gay themed poetry, we we include um, a novel by Theodore Winthrop as the first queer novel. Like all of these, um, you know, terms have much more recent genealogies, um, and some of them are born specifically out of political movements, right? So. Uh, Things like um, the, like the term uh, Asian American in the '60s. Um, uh, so yeah, so there, there's a whole lot of like different gambits at, at work here. Like we have to always historicize, but but also in order to like better understand American literary history, we have to work with um, uh, the the terms that exist in the present because those are also the ones that are kind of salient and um, have an effect in shaping the way in which we perceive this history. And, and so, in fact, Uli, as you mentioned earlier with um, uh, Anne Bradstreet as the first woman poet, 
in America. What is so significant is also that she's the first American port. The first American port is a woman. Um, likewise, with um, the with African American literature, um, the first uh, text of fiction that uh, we were able to find um, was, in fact, by an anonymous author referred to only as S, but is most likely a black woman who wrote an incredible story called Teresa, which is about the Haitian Revolution and um, the role that a teenage Haitian girl plays in basically shaping the revolution and in shaping um, uh, uh, Haitian history and, in fact, the, his- the history of the Americas. She has a prophecy, the character in this novel, Teresa, um, um, and uh, seeks to relay this prophecy uh, to Toussaint Louverture and, like, has and treks across um, a war-torn, d- d- during the revolution, war-torn Haiti, um, you know, to get to the revolutionist camp to convey her prophecy. So you literally have the first fictional text of African-American literature as foregrounding a Black woman, probably authored by a Black woman, and, um, you know, centering the Haitian revolution. It's, it's really incredible. Like, it, just the process of going through uh, and doing this research and reading these texts has been, like, an, an education in itself. That's really interesting. It actually reminds me of, um, I was reading an article recently about how one of the very first or possibly the first American vampire stories um, was written about like about a black vampire. So it's set during the Haitian Revolution as well. So it's interesting to think that one of the, the very first um, American vampire stories is actually about um, a black vampire and it's set during the Haitian Revolution. So it, it's really interesting to, to sort of trace these things back to their origin. Um, I think your voice cut out for a second. Uh... Hang on, sorry. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, You're sorry. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know why I don't know why I did that. Um, never mind. Um, I will put a footnote in it and I will I will get someone to edit it out later on. We ran out <laughs> so interesting what you just said is that let's say the first vampire story or one of the very first vampire stories is said in the black community or about a black or African American, we would say today vampire. What's really interesting, all these debates today that we have of can we cast a movie, can we cast a you know, a reenactment of an old tale or something of, I don't care, Wuthering Heights or who knows what, with non-white actors. Well, once mm-hmm. you learn this history, you realize, absolutely, the imagination was not actually segregated in this way, and people imagined and wrote stories. And in some ways, these debates we have today sometimes, which are so fierce and, to me, so narrow, sort of saying, is it possible to cast an actor in a Shakespearean play who is Asian? Uh, yes, it is actually possible because literature never had those kind of bounds. And in some ways, once you realize, oh, they are much, much earlier texts, I think it shifts people's understanding because there was a little bit, um, of course, the Book of Firsts is a book, as we said, of pioneers, of people who broke barriers. It's also testament to the kind of social exclusion in every area. Every celebrated first woman or first African-American is really testament to the fact that those people who are writing were excluded from publishing, from being read, from being printed, from being taught. So there's two sides to it. And once you go back and reach back and say, oh, one of the first vampire stories is actually a black story, you realize, wow. So it's not that Bram Stoker invents Dracula in Central Europe and everybody is pale and white. 
It's like, no, that's not, that's, that limits our understanding, I think, of literature. That's why we wanted to go back in history and get these texts out of the 19th century and much earlier, actually, in front of people to say, wow, actually, the tradition is much deeper and much richer. Absolutely. And I think that brings us nicely to the next question I wanted to ask. Um, and we've, as I said, we've kind of touched on this already, but I think the book of firsts, it really challenges and expands what we think of as the American literary canon. And was this your intention when you, in, when you compiled the anthology? Is this how you approached it initially? Or is that something that developed over time? It's, it's really... It is, and we wanted to expand the American literary canon. There are incredible anthologies out there. There are the major anthologies, um, the Norton anthology, then there are specialized anthologies. There are many anthologies of African-American literature, anthologies of Asian-American writing, starting with Frank Shin's famous IE anthology. Henry Louis Gates, really in the 80s, said we need to have our own separate anthology for African-American literature. There's an anthology of women's writing. There are many there, the Cambridge Guide to Gay Fiction. We think those are really critically important. Um, what we also found, and Smarna and I talked about this a lot, that in the major anthologies, the Heath Anthology, Norton Anthology, these are really big textbooks, very expensive, very voluminous. They look like Bibles, really. In those, some of the authors we have in are really still kind of put into sub-chapters. So there's American literary history, and then there's race as a topic. There are Native Americans as a topic. There's women as a topic. And we kind of thought, they're not really separate topics in this tradition. They are the same tradition. So our book kind of runs straight through um, and says everybody here contributed to this. And we are still, today, we're still struggling with kind of uh, to use a word that is a really problematic word, to not segregate these traditions, but to integrate all of it, to say they contribute as much. So the story that Smarin just referenced, 1828, uh, Teresa, a Haitian tale about the Haitian Revolution, um, that's a book, that's a text that everybody should read, in addition to Edgar Allan Poe's short stories, I think, and not replacing one with the other. So yes, we do think this adds a different kind of book to the American literary canon. And secondly, we hope it makes it available, you know, in a really, we tried to price it at a low, at a kind of low price point. And we wanted to make a book that's about 320 pages, not a thousand pages. Smart and I would like to do a book that's a thousand pages, but we were quite aware that maybe this is not the moment. And maybe today's students and readers actually appreciate a book that you can actually pick up and read and not have to lug around or, you know, just keep in your home. Right. And some of the texts, I mean, like I especially felt like, oh, my God, we have to include um, every single bit of, of writing that we came across in our uh, research process. And um, I mean, we had to make difficult choices. There's entire um, uh, you know, novels that we had to excerpt. I, I just wrote to Uli about Martin Delaney's um, Blake or the Huts of America, which is the first um, you know, African-American utopian novel. Um, um, so we, you know, we've had to make choices, uh, like that, but just as Uli said, also accessibility, affordability, um, you know, the, it's, it's something that uh, people forget that it, and getting an education is genuinely expensive. And I remember having to buy the Norton anthology and forking out in the, like a lot of money for, um, what, what are essentially, um, out of copyright, 
texts and that are kind of part of like a general uh, uh, cultural heritage of this country, right? And so, um, yeah, so I'm really glad that we were able to bring this out with this independent press that Uli works with called Warbler Press. And and even the ebook is like under $10, as it should be, right? We want these texts to circulate. We want them to be out um, uh, in the broader public, not simply in kind of niche editions. So, uh, I mean, a big part of this project was also to act as kind of mediators. Um, um, and, and even as we're self-reflexive of the responsibilities that come with that role, but like as mediators for bringing these texts to high schools, to a broader public, but also to academic classrooms. So I can personally, for example, totally imagine teaching a course that follows chronologically, um, you know, follows the trajectory of this anthology you know, from the first text to the last. We end with the first Arab-American novel um, in the early uh, 20th century, Amin Rihani, the book of Khaled. And it would be, um, yeah, I can totally see this as a class as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that because not only is the book, you know, obviously reasonably priced, but the fact that it's actually portable, I think would make it a much better text to use. I mean, the, the Norton Anthology is not portable. You cannot carry that around with you. Um, and I think that's it's one of those books, it's almost a deterrent for students, um, the weight and the size of it when it comes to, you know, bringing it to class so that they can engage with it. So having something like this that is, it's light, it's portable, it's afforded, uh, sorry, affordable, um, obviously it, it encourages students to read it, but it also makes these literary texts accessible and available to everyone as opposed to just, you know, the select few who can afford to, you know, shell out for, for the Norton Anthology or one of the more expensive anthologies. So it's it, it, it's a really admirable way of producing and, and publishing a book like this, I think. And, and like, to get out of the kind of, we were clearly addressing other anthologies. I have the one of the, the first editions of the Norton Anthology, which is a standard textbook in America, which a lot of listeners may be aware of. The first edition in the 1950s, authoritative, uh, handsome, very famous, that really shaped the mindset of thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of students, because teachers relied on it so much, includes one woman poet, Anne Bradstreet, one additional woman writer who's a diarist from the Puritan era, and then that's it. And everybody else is a white man. It ends with Lincoln. This is the first said. And it includes Confederate soldiers who are really apologists for the separatist cause. So you have a reflection of American history and they say, we only include texts that are artistically important. We don't want to write literary or social history. So in some ways, by excluding social history, they pretend that none of these people participated in social history, although they include Abraham Lincoln. And if we thought, Smart and I have talked about this for a long time, I mean, we lived through four years of the Trump presidency in America, which has really shaped public's discussion about what is proper American history, what deserves to be remembered. The Confederate statues debates in this country are only a symptom of this. The Black Lives Matter movement, which demands uh, uh, just racial justice, equality, wants to end police brutality, but also demands a kind of honest reckoning with America's history and not a kind of whitewashing of the, the, you know, the crimes that have been committed uh, in America as an honest kind of understanding of where we are in the present. So we thought this book gives you more of this background to say, oh, all these people contributed to America. They are all American writers. And not to say, 
it's only today's moment when we're debating whether to take down this statue or not, or you know whether to reform a police department. They are much bigger discussions. And I and Smaran, we really believe these discussions start with people actually expanding their understanding of who's contributed to our culture. And as you know, for four years, there was this really, you know, a very strong narrative in America that uh, this is a country that was civilized by white people. I mean, the Wall Street Journal, since 1961, reprints a text from one of the first European settlers and says this is a desolate wilderness of beasts and wild men. They reprint this in the Wall Street Journal for the last 45 years, every Thanksgiving, to say this is a white country by white people who then civilized and tamed the wild and tamed all these native people. So we thought, okay, there's a story being told. Let's tell a different story. Absolutely. And like that really just kind of indicates a very narrow view of what, you know, quote unquote, civilization encompasses as well. Um, and that anecdote is, I think, really astounding and, and really telling. Um, I wanted to ask as well, why did you decide to select first as your guiding theme? Why did you go with that? Why did you not, you know, just decide you know what, we'll, we'll create an anthology that is, you know, perhaps more intersectional in terms of the authors it looks at and the way in which it arranges them. Why did you go with first as, as your main theme? Well, I'll let Smaran come in, but one, one thing, I think as human beings, we actually all care about the first. America loves the first. First man on the moon, first, you know, African-American baseball player, first woman to break a world record. We love first. But as humans... I think we all love the first. We all know our first step we took. We don't remember maybe the first kiss, the first job, your first apartment, your first car, the first time you saw the ocean, something like that. Firsts are a very important part in our constitution as humans, as human because they open something up. And then we also address in the introduction the problem that America has always thought of itself as first. And this was a way to wipe out and erase the history and the presence of indigenous peoples. So we actually mark that and we start the book with a Native American creation myth to say the first is both a very powerful and empowering fantasy. It can also be a destructive one. But we thought the first is something that appeals to people in a general sense. And what you said, Miranda, would maybe be more accurate in a way, more more nuanced to kind of intersectional identities, but I think it wouldn't give you the kind of excitement of discoveries. But Smaran, you probably have a slightly, you know, an additional take on this. Yeah, no, for sure. But I mean, the, the, I think a lot of what you said is it uh, covers it, but I think, um, and maybe you might disagree with me, Uli, on this, uh, probably not, but I, I think of the uh, us using the first in this anthology, in particular, as a bit of a retort. Um, you know, whether we're saying it or not, uh, we had to confront for the past four years slogans and longer than four years slogans like America first, um, make America great again, so so on and so forth. And and this retort is to say, all right, you want to use the category first? Let's actually look at the category first. You know what what happens when you look at America through the lens of this of this uh, category of uh, of primacy? And so of course, um, I mean, I see it as a heuristic as a literary heuristic, a way to look at American literary history. Let's, um, you know, uh, uh, venture to, to just approach literary history through this framework 
and see what happens. And the, the fact of the matter is that just as golden age discourses in, in every country, um, you know, construct a very particular and, and very exclusionary vision of their national past that almost always seeks to, um, you know, reinforce dominant groups and, and uh, uh, dominant sort of forces in society. This is equally true in India, you know, where Hindu nationalism has been trying to rewrite Indian history um, by erasing all of its sort of um, Muslim, um, 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 Dalit, oppressed caste, um, uh, female, women, queer voices in, in history in order to construct a very sort of masculinist, nationalist, um, uh, you know, sort of religious uh, uh, vision of the past. Um, and so, and I think it's similar, and it's of course similar with America. So in one way, it's a, a, a retort to these kind of discourses. In another way, I think it's a heuristic. Um, and I, I, just as Uli said, we problematize it. So it's, it's extremely weighted. The, the, the moment you establish, um, say someone is the first American poet, what we're not taking into account is all the poetic, uh, oral poetic traditions that um, preceded the texts that we've included in, um, you know, in the anthology. So that's why we qualify each of our texts by saying this was the first published text. So in a sense, that's one of the limits, one of the constraints of this book is that it focuses on text. But, but as Uli says, like the, it's um, simply inaccurate uh, uh, to assume that there there wasn't um, uh, an uh, extremely long um, Native American literary and uh, past that, that precedes uh, published texts, right? So yeah, so this is a few different ways in which we kind of uh, approach the, the concept of firstness or primacy. Absolutely. Um, so I guess um, this might bring me to the next question, but you say that the the literary firsts included in this anthology often appeared in defiance of social and political attitudes. So why did you feel that it was important to foreground works that challenged cultural as well as literary norms? Um, we thought that fiction and poetry has a particular status because it's, it's, it's the intentional use of language to describe one's experience maybe your personal experience, maybe your understanding of the entire world or cosmos. And it gives something more than just accuracy or truth, but it's authenticity in the telling, by which we mean that it actually renders um, a life experience in ways that make sense to that person telling it. We think this is very important. And I was always struck when I, when I look at other anthologies, which are amazing and incredible, that whole parts of the anthology are given over, especially to so-called minority writers, to write nonfiction. So when you look at major anthologies, you have poems and you have plays and you have novels. And then when it comes to African-Americans or women, their political treatises, arguments, newspaper editorials, and speeches. And that has been commented on, upon by a lot of critics, not myself, but lots of other people have written about that, how uh, writers who are not considered mainstream, which is really white and male, are usually burdened with having to make a political argument, whereas other people are sort of free to write poetry. So I kind of thought there was an imbalance. And I also think 
as Smaran said, um, we're living through a period when we don't just have political kind of debates in our country and many other countries, but we have a debate over the proper way of telling our own story, over telling the narrative of a nation and of a people. And uh, the Trump administration had a major investment, like all administrations, in telling a particular story of America. That part of their work is really closely related to the imagination. They weren't writing novels, but they were trying to reframe our self-understanding. So we thought giving space to people who are in the business of doing that, of giving us the words, the metaphors, the patterns, the genres, the forms to imagine ourselves was probably more productive. And I teach literature. I like literature. I think it matters really greatly. The last example before I let Smaran come in is um, uh, Abraham Lincoln very famously said in 1861 when he met Harriet Beecher Stowe, the woman who wrote the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, which changed a lot of white readers' minds about <clears throat> the cruelty of slavery, a very problematic book. Nonetheless, Lincoln said, you are the little woman who started this great war. It's a bit of an apocryphal story, probably not entirely accurate, but he said a novel changed the mind of a culture about a condition that people had justified for decades, for over 100 years. So I was interested in this kind of impact that the imagination can have on our lives. Um, and I would jump in to add um, something about um, these past four years, the, the government's approach to literature and to scholarship. Um, I mean, because, uh, you know, they, they, may, they might not have tried to write um, literature, uh, a new story about the, this history's past, but they have tried to erase um, the way in which literature frames this country's identity. So if you think about the, the poem on the Statue of Liberty, right? Uh, Emma Lazarus's The New Colossus. They, I mean, they literally tried to remove that poem from the Statue of Liberty, which is kind of, um, I mean, which forms a, a, a big part of this uh, country's self-identity. And I mean, that itself can be problematized. It's not uh, to call America a nation of immigrants is once again to kind of elide the fact that African-Americans weren't immigrants and that Native Americans were obviously already here, but um, to, to attack uh, a poem that is, you know, so definitive of, of America's uh, view of itself is significant. And similarly, um, the way in which critical race theory as an approach to studying the law and legal studies has been, you know, an, uh, attacked by the administration is also really significant because the kind of approaches that um, uh, I have been trained in and many others have been trained in, in precisely approaching the canon and trying to see it in different ways that interestingly, start from legal studies are, are extremely significant. Like, I don't think a project like this um, might have been as easy or, or, as, um, or, or as possible without, um, you know, without the past of uh, critical race theory. But yeah, exactly. Also, as Uli says about um, um, authenticity in the telling, we have this one sentence in the book where we say, it, the book presents works of fiction and poetry rather than speeches and political essays because imaginative literature, we use the term imaginative literature, aims not for factual truth alone, but as Uli says, for um, accuracy and authenticity in the telling. And there's, uh, uh, just to build on what Uli said, there's something really specific about um, imaginative literature, about poetry and fiction in the way in which it's able to capture human experience 
in a way that non-fictional texts can't. And that's why it's a tragedy that the uh, mainstream anthologies do often include, um, you know, political treatises or, um, um, you know, uh, essays in the place of, uh, of fiction and poetry when it comes to minoritized authors, women authors, queer authors. It's, uh, as, as Uli said, who's allowed to be kind of the, the practitioner of the imagination? Like, why is it that we get to read, just to stick with our example, with Poe as this, um, um, you know, as this uh, 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 literary uh, genius, but um, when it comes to race, we only read Frederick Douglass's, say, um, uh, autobiography or speeches, but not his fictional story. So, like, this was something that was really exciting for us was to um, uh, was to read and include Frederick Douglass's The Heroic Slave, which is um, uh, which is a fictional story. Um, yeah, I guess there's something really significant about uh, uh, about the focus on on poetry um, and, and fiction. Just one last point I'd like to add is is um, that uh, it, it really is a tragedy that when that this expectation is is often thrust upon, say, women authors to write about gender, for Asian American authors to write about immigration, or for uh, African American authors to write about race and racism, which of course we want to do when it comes to uh, when it comes to these topics, but it shouldn't be an external constraint applied to these literary traditions. Miranda, if I can add one thing. So uh, yeah, of course. I've been very invested, and Smart and I've worked on some projects in the issue of free speech. And I published a book uh, two years ago with Oxford called uh, What Snowflakes Get Right About Free Speech. And um, this book is really a testament to free speech in America. All of these people wrote against social restrictions, sometimes legal restrictions, against, in the case of all the women in this book, they were not allowed to get an education the way their brothers did. In the case of many of the African-Americans, they were not free subjects, not legally recognized. They had no rights that we would speak of. They hadn't a right to speak in court. Their testimony wasn't allowed. They were not allowed to actually publish in newspapers, but they published poems and novels. And for me, this is a book that celebrates free speech in America. And this book is really um, something I want to send to all those so-called free speech absolutists in America who self-style themselves to be the great defenders of the First Amendment, who have never read or heard of any of these texts, who actually claim that the First Amendment, which was ratified in 1791, and not cited by the United States Supreme Court until 1918 or 19. For over 100 years, this First Amendment is never used to let anybody speak because all these people in this book didn't wait for a court or for Congress to give them the right to speak. So for me, there was this, there is this really problematic misrepresentation of the history of free speech in America that the benevolent Congress ratifies the First Amendment when the 13th state, 13th state finally ratifies, it becomes a federal amendment, and that allows everybody in America to speak. The history of America is that for 100 years, people were kept out of public debate. And this book is the evidence and testimony of all those people who didn't wait for a court or for some lawyer or some pundit to declare that now they also have free speech. So this is a book that talks about free expression, and that's why we focus on literature, which is 
the poetry novels place they give rise they come out of the urge of free expression which is a deeply human urge not an american urge not an american right not a human right not a legal right but a human urge to express oneself so we wanted this book to sit in this space and to be honest with you to really send it to all the people on you know fox news and talk radio who are you know not so enamored of my argument about free speech but they can now read this book and say this is the true history of free speech in America. So I was really interested in using fiction and poetry here by people who were never authorized publicly and didn't care one whit about that, who didn't want someone to say, oh, now you have a right because you won a court case. Um, they actually published things. And this is what literature is, which literature writes a different history. It doesn't write the history that the law writes. It doesn't write the history that the archives contain. It is the history, as Smaran said, kind of of an authentic life. And for me, that's really exciting. To be honest with you, my students get that immediately. When I assigned them one of these texts, they immediately were kind of electrified to think, oh, so here's an Asian American in the 1890s publishing in a newspaper a story that talks about the kind of issues that a normal family goes through. This is long before any court case grants Asian Americans the full citizen rights that they've always deserved after living in this country for much longer than people think. So it goes to a much deeper history. So they look at a poem and they say, oh, so here's an African-American who writes a play and publishes it in 1858 because we can't find the play 1923, which I always want to find because it was performed actually down the street from where I live today which is called the drama of King Shottaway in 1823, Henry Brown's play, which has never been found. In 1823, there was a black theater in New York City where they performed plays written by uh, black authors in 1823. We don't know this play anymore. We, it's, it's been lost. But my students were totally electrified. They said they wanted to talk about that uh, long before you know, African-Americans are finally granted the rights that are human rights that they should have had from the get-go. So a bit of a, a lighter question now. I wanted to ask both of you, what's your favorite piece in the anthology? What was the one that really, really spoke to you? I think I have a short answer to this, and it's definitely um, uh, Teresa by the author S, you know, the anonymous author, the, the one that I described earlier. It's, um, I, I really think it's so significant as, um, as, an, as an early uh, uh, text in, in, in the American tradition, the first um, um, African-American uh, work of fiction. Um, Miranda is like asking me to choose among my family members who is the favorite. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I love all of them. You know, it's like, you don't want to answer this, but to be honest with you, the text that kind of started me on this project is uh, Sui Sen Far, who is a Canadian Asian or Asian American writer in 1909, she publishes a short story called in the land of the free about um, a, uh, American family in San Francisco. And the woman had spent some years in China with her uh, family and returns to America and the customs official take away her baby at the San Francisco port because he doesn't have the right papers. Um, and they put him in an orphanage and won't give him back to this family until they basically hand over all their family jewelry, all their possessions to this lawyer who goes to Washington and appeals. And the story is deeply moving. It is a really, really 
upsetting story in a way about a family um, whose child is taken away by custom officials. And the ending is very complicated because it says something about what is the toll that it takes for people to become Americans. But I love this story. I love Sui Sin Far. And there's a line from Anne Bradstreet, the first poet, as Smaran said, who publishes um, a book in America. In the 1650s, there's a line that is, I may seem thine, who in effect are none. I may see, seem thine, who in effect are none, which I have printed and framed in my bedroom. And if I was a person who got tattoos, I would tattoo that. I think it's one of the most beautiful lines of um, love and affection that I've known in poetry. So between Anne Bradstreet and Sui Sin Far, I love everybody in the book, though. So I can't really take, pick my favorites. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a difficult choice. Um, it really is an incredible anthology. So we're, we're running out of time, but I did want to just ask before we finished up, um, do I, are either of you working on any new projects? What's up next for you? So I'm wrapping up my PhD dissertation, um, which is about Afrofuturist fiction. So I'm writing about, um, I mean, it, it's, uh, I'm writing about uh, Octavia Butler and Samuel oh, wow who are um, in a way uh, kind of first in, in modern, uh, in sort of modern science fiction. So from the late 20th century, the kind of the, the two giants of, of Afrofuturist fiction, I'm, I'm looking at how um, in, in each of their novels, they, uh, they use science fiction to retell the history of um, uh, colonialism and slavery um, in the Atlantic and in, in uh, in uh, the U.S., uh, you know, in, in a new way. They, they're sort of able to um, write revisionary histories <clears throat> um, um, through their science fiction um, of these past. So, yeah, so I'm just wrapping that up. In fact, I was just finishing up uh, uh, my first journal article, which uh, seems t like um, tentatively accepted into a special uh, issue on the basis of my first chapter where I'm looking at um, Octavia Butler's Xenogenesis uh, 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 trilogy and. Um, uh, the way that it, it works as a kind of uh, powerful uh, metaphor for uh, settler colonialism and indigenous um, dispossession. Yeah, so that's my, my project. But one uh, quick thing uh, before uh, passing it over to Uli is that I've been kind of pushing Uli to maybe do a second um, uh, follow-up volume to the Book of First, where we go from 1920 up until into the present, because the um, there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, um, other firsts that weren't included uh, in, in this earlier historical period, but things like, say, the first uh, Indian-American novel and the first Pakistani-American novel, which are incidentally published in the same year, in the 60s, um, uh, you know, I, I would be really exciting to, uh, to look at and to anthologize. So that's uh, maybe a, a future project if I can strong into it. <laughs> that, that sounds... That sounds really, really fascinating. And I, I definitely want to check out that article when it comes out because I'm, I'm a big fan of Octavia Butler as well. So um, I definitely want to see that when it comes out. Um, how about you, Uli? What are you well, doing at the moment? Mara, and I'm thinking, I, I, <laughs> I'm happy to entertain this, but I really, I'm like everyone else, really just praying for the pandemic to be over. The strange thing is during this pandemic, we've worked on this, but... You know, I don't think I've gone to sleep before 3 a.m. 
four months because I got so lost in, and excited by the research for this book that that's basically all I do since most of my life otherwise disappeared. I'm very fortunate. I have a job. I have an apartment to live in. But at the same time, as everybody else is going through, you spend a lot of time at home. So what, what we did, we edited Fictions of America. That was kind of the, the pastime. Um, and then I really love editing and I love updating um, classic texts. I think it's really an, a critical part of um, that things stay in circulation. So I'm editing a lot of uh, big works. I'm republishing an edition of The Great Gatsby. Um, and I did a little series of books, which I was, I'm very fond of because they were just all labors of love. So I did a series on love, on the topic of love, and I edited Emily Dickinson, Oscar Wilde, Friedrich Nietzsche, Rainer Maria Rilke, and William Shakespeare in these little readable books on love, which were basically required as many decisions as Fictions of America, what to include. Um, but for me, it's very gratifying to do these smaller books or more accessible books after, you know, I've been in the Academy for a very long time, 30 years or something like that, and to be able to draw on research and make that accessible and available and it's really gratifying. People write to me and say, your book um, that you edited on Rilke, which I didn't write because it's Rilke or Nietzsche or Dickinson who wrote that, really helped me in this period. So I love doing this editorial work. So for the moment, I think I'm going to stick with that. So this little love series is something that's close to my heart. And it's, um, as Maren said earlier, we really, for me, it's really a wonderful thing to be able to share the incredible work that goes on in the academy and among independent scholars. And we lived through a time in America where there was a lot of disparagement, disdain and suspicion of research, of scholarship, of expertise. So for me, this book is really a celebration of people who have dedicated their lives to doing difficult archival work. Um, and um, so it's really, it's really fun to edit these things. So I think I'm going to uh, continue to edit um, my Besides The Great Gatsby, I'm hoping to publish a new introduction to Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. So th those are monumental tasks, so it's going to keep me busy for at least another couple of months. Absolutely. Some really interesting projects there. So just as we're finishing up, I would just like to thank both of you again for joining me today. It was a really, really fascinating conversation. And Fictions of the Americas, uh, the book of firsts, is available now from Warbler Press. And I believe it's also available on all of the various online retailers as well. And as you mentioned earlier, at an affordable price, and it's nice and portable as well. So uh, definitely one to check out. So again, Uli and Smarin, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. This was really fun. Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you so much. And thank you for spending your time uh, to get to know uh, our book, Smarin and I, we consider it it's our, you know, child or teenager or whatever. We didn't write it. We just put it into the world. So we hope people will enjoy it. Oh, thank you both. That was really, really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you.